Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, while Bo's return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and sorry I can't switch over to my co-host Scott anymore, because he's dead. This is the weekly podcast where I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of fake fratricide, leapfrogging identities, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, I go... Matt, I'm, Matt what, are you, what are you doing? Hmm? Are you doing the podcast without me? Um, no, no. Did you try to lock me in the basement and tell them I'm dead again? Yes. Wow. What an unambiguously terrible thing to do. You are unquestionably a bad person. There. We said it. Get off our backs about Tristan now. <laughs> Matt, this week we are covering four chapters. 9.9, 9.y, 9.10, and 9.11. We took a week off. We're back. And we've got a lot, of, a lot to talk about. Yeah. One of, um, I think, the big unifying beats or, or threads of these four chapters uh, is kind of this push and pull between surviving today and uh, the consequences for tomorrow. Uh, Victoria and company are trying to help defeat teacher, all the while being aware of this goddess problem. Um, Victoria is desperately latching onto coping mechanisms that may or may not affect her in the long run. And as for Tristan, well, he's completely, completely unable to think about the long term and he makes a choice. A horrible, horrible choice that, as we said, is unquestionably, unambiguously bad. Matt, how were these four chapters for you? These were these were great. Um, I I don't know. I, I just the, the the they were fun. They were heart wrenching. Um, you you feel a lot of satisfaction in 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 things coming to a head for Victoria. There's a lot of thematic things that are happening that are resonating across the chapters, even between. Even, you know, not only within the Victoria chapters, but between the Victoria and the Capricorn chapters, um, there's just some really great psychology going on uh, across the board, which is it's becoming one of my favorite things to talk about with Ward, which I suppose is not surprising because this is a story about people who are in a therapy group. Yeah. Um, But just like the psychological depth and complexity, I just cannot get enough of that. Yeah. And and we have in our protagonist a person that's very aware of, you know, psychology and, and she's been through a lot of therapy. Um, so she's very kind of conscious of the fact that she's employing coping mechanisms and, and searching out different different paths through her mind to be able to to survive. Um, and it's kind of fascinating watching her process of doing that as she goes. Um, I, I really I really I say this all the time. Victoria as a protagonist, I think, is is just infinitely fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I really enjoyed these chapters too. Um, we have another interlude that we're probably going to spend a lot of time on again, but since we have four chapters, we're going to try to balance it out a little more. Um, the last two chapters are pretty action heavy, so we're probably going to spend less time on like um, then they fight, but there's still so much happening in those battles, so much psychological battling within Victoria's head while she's fighting long that there's still a lot to talk about there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, like the, the, the last chapter we're going to talk about today, for example, as I was writing the synopsis, I was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is, uh, it's going to be easy. And it's like, Nope, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's detailed. It's, it's complicated. Um, there's much more going on than punching and, and flying. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, so let's get to it. Yeah, so some announcements first. So, so yeah, the Halloween contest, um, we, we need entries in by November 1st. Yeah, it is October now, so it's it's coming right around the corner. End of end of this month will be here before we know it. Yeah, so um, every, everybody get to work on your Parahumans contests because presumably that's what everyone's going to be doing. Yeah. So, all right. What are you wearing, Matt? Um, I, I don't know. I haven't decided yeah. yet. As always, the, the link to the rules and the submission guidelines and all that will be in the in the show notes. So click on that if you want to find out more about it. It's we're really excited. I can't wait to see what you guys wear. Yeah. I'm and you have the sleeper. Just decided. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. You have to take selflesses, too. That's the new rule that I've made up right now. You have to take a, a selfless. Yes, absolutely. That has to be included. Yeah. And if it's not, then that's fine. <laughs> Um, okay. Wait, wait, wait. That's contradictory. <laughs> um, all right. So now for the we're not actually going to do the community spotlight section. Yeah. Section. So um, we got the last the thread was the busiest the thread has been in a while. Um, most of it, people having um, issues with some of our analysis from two weeks ago. Um, our question was kind of very pointed based on that kind of analysis. And, um, look, this is already going to be a very long episode. We didn't feel like spending a lot of time, like going into the complaints and details and, and backing up our points and, and doing that kind of stuff was, was valuable or frankly, very interesting. Uh, I'm just going to say like a lot of you made some really great points. Um, we got some really great emails from people that, that disagreed with us on one or two things. Um, even some YouTube comments made good points, which geez, does that happen? I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, so we've, we've heard you, um, we appreciate your points, Matt, just in general, real quick, what is your like, you know, quick response to that discussion question? Um, which was, man, I don't even remember it anymore. Um, why do we, why do we need to like a gamify characters and, and, um, decide who is worse, like make, make a versus between our characters in a, in a story. I think people just automatically identify with, with a character or they, or they view a character as, as an an antagonist, one or the other. And you then begin to undertake a process of, you know, coming up with reasons why the character, um, is, is a good person who's on your side, the same circuitry that you, that you, um, enlist when you're trying to like justify the actions of like a, an ally in real life. Yeah. Um, or, or if they're an enemy, you s- use the same circuits that you use to think of all the reasons why they're a piece of shit. And, um, that's not a level on which I really, uh, enjoy an analyzing fiction. I would, it would be a complete lie to say that I never read fiction that way because I, like I absolutely incapable of like getting into the movie or the, or the book and, and being like, fuck yeah. When, when the hero does an awesome thing and, and not like, I don't always sit back from the, the media and analyze it with a snifter of cognac. Like it, it's, <laughs> it's, um, like that, that's just like, if we're going to be having a long conversation about it, I want to get into like the complexity of what the, what the author is trying to say, what, what, what can be read into the interestingness of the interactions. And like, that's, I don't know. I, I think I think we're uh, that's that's what we're aiming for. Yeah, I, I find no analytical value in the phrase Tristan is worse than Byron. Um, I, I like 
I'm much more interested in, OK, if Tristan makes this terrible choice, as he does at the end of this, what what do we what is the book saying about that? What is the book saying about their situation? How did they get to the place where Tristan is going to make this choice? Um, and how, like, how did it happen and what does it mean? And and I just like to me, like, I understand it, it is very human and natural to to want to say I'm on this person's side. I'm team X. Or I'm team Y. But. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you that in our role as trying to analyze it, I'm I don't want to take sides like and, and a lot of people thought we were taking Tristan's side and I didn't feel that I was doing that at all. And I'm sorry if that that's the way it came off. I was just trying to show where I think the text is pointing out ways in which Tristan's behavior is not all appro- altogether appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. And just to kind of modify something you said, I actually think it was the minority of, of people who um took issue with the, with our approach. I think it yeah. was, I think it was just, um, it, it's, it's always interesting when, um, people feel personally attacked because we criticize something about a character that they identify with. And, and I understand that. Yeah. Um, but I guess I would just urge, like, if, if you feel like we're personally attacking you, we're just not yeah. like, I, 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 that, that's not our intent. Um, we're we're pointing out like like common foibles in humanity that we that we feel are being indicated by by this book and um and and that's not to say we're going to be right 100% of the time we're not um we're we we spend a lot of time analyzing this and I think we're fairly good at it but we mess up um if I go back and listen to that episode and say that that maybe I leaned a little bit too too he- heavily um Sorry, but I, I don't think it was ever our intention to to construct a world in which Tristan is the angel boy and Byron is the terrible, horrible devil boy. No, no. Yeah. yeah. So that's all we're going to say about that. Yeah, that's the that's the most level of addressing we're going to do. Um, we appreciate all your feedback as always. Keep it up. Never feel like you can't send us that feedback. Um, but, you know, be be charitable. <laughs> yeah. Be charitable, guys. Come on. All right. Let's get into it. All right. We open chapter 9.9 with Breakthrough entering the prison dimension. Capricorn Orange and Antares cover Goddess's entry into the complex. Goddess attunes her power to make her immune to Victoria's aura. Yeah, and as we mentioned at the start of the episode, this the common thread I saw in these chapters was this idea of today, surviving today versus dealing with tomorrow. And... Um, all the chapters are full of this, but I think this moment here right at the beginning kind of starts to cement that we have um, Vicky's aura, one of her most powerful tools basically being removed from the board by goddess. And there's a little bit of, uh Oh, what does that mean for any future conflict between the two of them? And then there's this, like to reinforce that there's this beat right here after that, where Victoria says, "I I couldn't tell myself, I could tell myself that for right now we would go after the one threat we felt unambiguous about. But thought and feeling both told me that I would feel just as wrong about betraying goddess later on. So again, this is this this like theme of the chapters that we're like, we can we can get through today. We can get through now. But we got we got a tomorrow problem looming. Yeah, that's a good point. I love how much we're learning about goddess in the background, kind of almost in like a passive offhand way where rarely is it the focus. But but everything she does is 
you know, sort of carefully chosen to say a certain thing about her. Like, for example, the choice of her choosing to attune herself to Victoria's power. It's like it's not actually hurting her. It might be distracting her. It's unpleasant. The main thing is it's unpleasant and she doesn't want to feel anything bad. So she she like stops in the middle of the fight to make sure that she's immune to Victoria's aura. Yeah. Um, And then and then like the next thing she does is like um, or not, not the next thing, but like with within that scene, she's like. She says, deal with it, she said, without stepping forward. And then Victoria's like like thought response is she'd have her reasons. <laughs> um, so I just like the consistent minor touches of goddess being a cowardly, dumb piece of shit. And <laughs> and then the compulsion, like smoothing over her behavior in Vicky's head. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you pulled this out because I, I Wildbow is doing a lot of subtle stuff with goddess. And it, it, it kind of by its nature has to be subtle because our point of view character is someone who holds her up as... Um, the highest authority, the best person. Um, I think this this chapter starts out with her saying, my authority figure that I usually lean on when I'm in times of confusion and uncertainty just punched a hole in a wall. Um, but so we can't like directly paint goddess as this cowardly, selfish piece of shit that she is. Um, we have to like kind of do it subtly and then have almost have Victoria kind of explain it away as soon as possible, which like if that only happened once, you might just kind of miss it, but it happens multiple times throughout these chapters. There, again, and again, there's moments where, where goddess makes decisions or does things that um, on the surface, you're like, well, wait a minute. And then Victoria says, no, 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 don't worry about that. It's yeah. to- totally fine. Yeah. I think we'll pick out a couple more of those. Yeah. Yeah. So um, speaking of, you know, Victoria's perceptions of things, uh, the inner monologue is conveying her complete discombobulation at the start of this chapter. Yeah. She's still reeling from the confrontation and the almost squashing of Amy. She's severely on edge due to trying to skirt the compulsion. Um, And in her words, uh, I felt less like a cape than I had on my first night out in costume. Yeah, this is probably the most important thing going on right now is is Victoria's complete kind of breakdown in her head. She's she's a mess. And we get this this little mini three beat where Victoria is reminding herself like she's getting distracted and like yelling at herself to focus. Um, one of the times it almost gets her hurt because she like extends a burnt arm for Sveta to grab onto. And it was just not the arm she should have used in it. And she's like she's chastising herself for her lack of focus. And it only really gets worse from here. And the thing that really sucks about this, Matt, is that like even as Victoria like scrambles for coping mechanisms and like and moves from identity to identity to find one that can be effective and and survive this fight, like we have to we have to recognize the fact that she has very little choice in this matter. Like, I I don't think the right answer here is, Victoria, you need to get out of this situation like she can't like both because of goddesses compulsion and just because like her duties to her teammates and her friends and, and her, her her sense of duty to the world. She, she can't. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here and chastise her for using coping mechanisms when like, there, what, what <laughs> is the other choice just to roll up in a ball and get killed in this prison? Right. I, I feel like um, this arc has actually just been a sequence of layering on the pressures on her. Yeah. Um, and, and and putting her in situations where she can't employ her, her normal, um, well, I mean, we, we've identified before that she tends to deal with situations where she's having a rough time by literally flying away. Right. And she she can't, she was confronted with Amy in a, in a situation where she can't get away from Amy. 
Um, she's now being forced into battle in, in a in a in a mental frame where she really shouldn't be fighting. Yeah. And um, and this shows us how she responds when she's just basically has so much pressure put on her that it's either um, change or die. I think. Yeah. Well, and we know that the, the thing Victoria likes the most in her caping is clear um, right and wrong. Like this person, bad punch, bad person. Like th- that clarity is something she grab grabs onto. And because of goddess, that clarity has been thrown all a lurch. There is no clear right or wrong anymore. There's no like it's all confused in her head and she, like there's self-contradiction. So none of her coping mechanisms are working as we'll we'll literally see here in a minute. Yeah, you know, let's, let's get through some of this and we can point out some of the exact things. Yeah. So, yeah, like so first thing, you know, she realizes that she's violating the law and like that's her own personal first line of defense against making mistakes. So from that, she pivots to thinking about the protocols as a kind of stand in for the law and then thinks about Dean as a way of making those protocols feel grounded in something good. Um, but this time, those thoughts of Dean quickly lead to thoughts of Amy. Yep. And, and she thinks, I couldn't cling to that for strength so long as other memories attach themselves. Both the times she'd been there when I was with Dean and the times she hadn't been there when I'd been with him were mucked in together, muddled and muddied, shat on by her proximity to them, that he'd have to, that he'd have to have known, sorry, that he'd had to have known, yeah, that she could have saved him and she hadn't. Um, and like she's, she's also then though able to reach further and find something that amy hasn't shat on namely those times that amy wasn't present and i think crucially and and fascinatingly one of those times that she picks is her time in the hospital Mm -hmm. as a as a blob while she was studying powers and and kind of taking on that mantle of the scholar uh and and then of course she also picks her later glowworm era period as the powers geek with the patrol um, and these, these memories give her a core of selfhood that doesn't let her down. And then to punctuate this kind of finding a new identity that she could hold on to, she puts on her mask <sighs> and it says, I, I wore a face, my face, but it was cast in alloy, untouchable, unmoving. I, I love that moment so much. And, and yeah, as, as we said a minute ago, what we're seeing here is an absolute collapse of every single one of her old coping mechanisms. We've seen her go back to her mantra before. Um, that's failing her. We've seen her her flee to memories of Dean and the strength that Dean and, and the connections to uh, to cape training that Dean gives her. That's not working anymore. Um you can kind of imagine like Victoria, like sprinting through the maze that is her mind. And like every turn she finds Amy there again. So she has to double back and go another way. And she's just like getting more and more desperate. Nothing's working. And I, I, I love it so, so much. And I love how wild Bo writes, like how your mind, like does these, these weird mental connects that don't always make sense to you. Like there's a moment here where she's thinking of this specific memory with Dean and suddenly Amy's there and she's like, what, what is, how does this have anything to do with Amy? And then her brain starts turning about how it might have something to do with Amy. And that's in the quote you said that, that he'd have to have known that she could have saved him and she hadn't. And, and your brain just starts like, it just heads down like a rabbit hole of, of these connections. And then you just find yourself like totally shut down. So like all this stuff is happening to her. And in that moment, she, 
she creates almost a new identity because she takes, yeah, as you said, um, the Cape geek, this, the, and she, the Cape geek of her in the hospital, the Cape geek of her on patrol, um, even, um, the person that she was with her parents, the, the, that glory girl personality, that, that member of a Cape family was something that she felt that Amy was never a part of. And she always was a part of. So she uses that. She kind of embraces glory girl a little bit here. And, um, it's, it's fascinating that she's now constructed this identity based off of moments in her past that before had given her a lot of, a lot of agitation, a lot of guilt, a lot of regret. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the choose, choosing anything having to do with the wretch as like a positive thing to hold on to, uh, I, I actually view as, um, growth. I don't know if you agree with me on that, but it's, it's a sign that she's able to um, to 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 disconnect those things from like the, the trauma. Like she's she's sort of taking she's sort of owning it, and uh, it's no longer it's no longer part of her trauma. It's like she's it's like she's yeah. partitioning away the trauma, um, more having to do with Amy and less specifically having to do with the time in the hospital. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. I mean, I think. There, there were moments throughout this these chapters that I was really worried about her as she kind of constructs this identity and like she's re-embracing this this glory girl personality that had just like did things that she regretted so much. But I mean, I, I do think like, you know, I think that's part of living with trauma, right, is that you have to to find a way you have to find an identity um, that you can live with and that you can survive with. And that's kind of what she's doing. And the old ones are not working. So yeah. she's, she's finding new ones. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think like she kind of rejected the whole glory girl identity, I think because it was like, I acted like that and behaving that way put me into the situation that led yeah. to me going into the hospital. And so she kind of rejected that whole self and she may have, I think maybe she's discovering here, like, you know, that that was still me. And I, and maybe she's deciding, like, I don't want to throw away that whole that, that whole self, that that whole way of, of viewing myself. I can I can maybe use it when I need to use it yeah. and then layer that in with other aspects of myself, like the warrior monk. And I, like this is the stuff that I love and that I think of as being like the psychologically realistic um awesomeness of yeah. these chapters. Well, and, and the thing I love is that this is very clearly set up to an amazing payoff at the end of our section this week on chapter nine eleven, where she takes these uh, disparate personalities and kind of combines them. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, we, I, I mean, obviously we're both excited to talk about that because yeah, we just jumped ahead four chapters. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're, 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 but like it's, it's threaded throughout this whole thing. So yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll move on and we'll kind of hit upon it as we, as we get to it. So yeah, yeah, so they make their way into the open, and Goddess creates a fortification of dirt, then uses her danger sense to glean a lot of information about the disposition of the defenses. She first identifies the location of a sniper and uses her TK to take out most of the building that he's in. Yeah, and I think the, the team has a, a pretty immediate reaction to this. Of course, we know Victoria is because she's kind of sensing that something's not going on, but we see Sveta here for the first time maybe like questioning or pushing back on Goddess. She, she says, hurt you hurt the guards and of course Kenzie replies maybe they were bad people right 
and it, it seems like it seems like as this this battle is escalating, we're we're more pushing against the limitation of Goddess's power here that that these people will only do what they're capable of, and she's beginning to ask them to do things and behave in ways that contradict with their basic set of morals and and what they believe is right and wrong and and i love i love that there's this built-in limitation to this power this thing that seems so strong and so like utterly defeating um has serious limitations to it yeah yeah i mean i love sveta's reaction especially in contrast to how she was behaving before because one of her major hang-ups is like is like uh uh, betrayal and um a, a feeling like people are are talking behind her back yeah on her own team and that's what she felt was happening before so she was like doubling down on the goddess uh the 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 go goddess stuff there but now it's like oh well hurting people is her absolute like red line like like that that's unacceptable to sveta that's because i mean that's her that's like the main thing about her character so yeah um i mean more, more than any of the other breakthrough members so that was um it makes a lot of sense that she would have a hang up here absolutely so then Antares pushes back against Goddess's plan to go building to building and round up people. And she explains that she's trying to serve better by not being a yes man, which is basically a lie. <laughs> uh, but it's the kind of lie that the compulsion will kind of work with and not just like make her freeze up. Loopholes. Uh, and then we get this gem regarding cryptid. He came to me with a form prepared to counter me. And that is, as far as I detected, only one of three levels of deception that boy was putting into practice. You don't want to tell me that you're following his suit. Oh, Christopher. Yeah, this is a a great confirmation of something that I think a few of our listeners theorized that um, he 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 prepared a form that was resistant to that. So that's great to see. And yeah, I mean, like three levels of deception like i cannot wait to find out what this kid's deal is i'm ready i'm ready for the the chris art comment yes absolutely like as much as i love everything that's happening right now i'm so ready for it yeah i mean man uh, we've said it before but this is the story is going to be a required reread yeah oh absolutely like i mean there's even stuff um with that we learn via Tristan here that I think requires you to kind of reapproach his scenes, as I think one of our listeners said, um, mm-hmm. and, and Kenzie did the same thing. So I'm sure every, every interaction with Chris, once we learn his deal is going to be enhanced on our degree. So yeah, anyway, and Terry successfully convinces her uh, goddess to not just immediately start corralling mind slaves because the assistant warden is watching everything with his finger on the bomb button. Yeah, I I love kind of how this is expressed, too, because Victoria is like in full like glory girl embracement mode, like the, the what she's calling the scholar. Um, and and so she like so she's in this moment and, and she's an it's an identity that she's kind of pulled together from her time on patrol, her time on the hospital, her early memories with her parents and all that stuff. So based on on all the self, when she confronts goddess, she's pulling memories from that self. Like, I think it's 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 fascinating that she's she's built this identity and then is immediately able to access memories that align with that identity to use in her argument. That's how she kind of decides to confront goddess about this by by remembering a time when her and her parents had an argument and they talked to her like she was um a a person equal to them and that's that's kind of what she uses to frame this argument i love that like that that so, so fits into her point of view her mind right now because she's made this like i think normally we would be very surprised to see victoria go back to a memory of her parents for strength 
Um, but she's doing that here because that's that's based on the personality she's created. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And, and uh, I, I think the, the chapter kind of starts with her comparing goddess to like a, a mother figure. Right. Um, indirectly. And, and now she's putting herself in a position of like a, mo- a mother and father figure treating her as an equal. And, and so yeah, it makes a lot of sense that, that she would go there. Yeah. Um, I like this bit where goddess asks Tress, like asks if Tress can hold a knife at somebody's throat <laughs> and she sees that she's not capable and then lookout is like, Ooh, pick me. <laughs> okay. It's really bad, but I kind of want to see lookout try to do that. <laughs> I think it would be really funny. Yeah. I mean, she'd probably be pretty scarily good at it actually. Yeah. But this is again, what we were just talking about there, there are built in limitations to goddess's power. She cannot, she, she, she's supposed to be this like super powerful world conquering person, but she cannot just like walk into this prison and make people do whatever she wants. She has to be a little more strategic about it. She can't get someone to do what, what she wants them to do right now because none of her, um, aligned people are capable of doing that. Yeah. And I think it's really worth saying out loud, like what, what Victoria cannot think because what Victoria should be thinking is like, this idiot is going to sabotage herself. If she just, she, she's, she's such a like blunt thinker. She's just going to like mm-hmm. start smashing through buildings and hypnotizing people like a Katamari Damasi or whatever. Um, that's, that's not the, that's not the approach here. Like there are, there are strategic reasons why we need to be cautious. Yeah. And goddess doesn't realize this. And Victoria kind of has to like, like bend over backwards to communicate it in a way that her ego will accept. Yeah. Goddess is um, dumb, yo. <laughs> She's yeah. she's not like it, it, it's kind of fascinating. And I think as we learn more about her as we go, we're going to see, you know, why this is. But if you can imagine someone super young getting so powerful that they can get someone else to do everything for them, that they would just never feel the need to learn any of these things. And I think that's kind of what we see in Goddess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the group. um yeah, so anyway, um, Goddess then tells them to gather together all the members of Breakthrough and the undercover Foresight members because that's basically what Victoria kind of advocates for. Yep. And so the group splits up with Goddess taking Natalie and Lookout while Antares peels off with Tress and Capricorn. So small, completely unanalytical side note, but something I just wanted to bring up. How fucking scary would it be to be Natalie right now? You're mm-hmm. You're in a war zone. You don't have any powers. You know everyone around you is mind controlled, but you're not. And you're basically powerless to stop any of it. Like, I know Victoria is having a really bad day, but Jesus, like being Natalie right now, I can't. I can't. Yeah, no, the, you're, you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you actually mentioned that because it's like it gives it actually forces you to think about like what we know Natalie pretty well. We've been in her head. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, this gives uh, the those members of Breakthrough the opportunity to bring up the Master Stranger protocols with Sveta, um, who of course hasn't actually heard of them because of her background, mm-hmm. or doesn't at least doesn't know them very well. And then Capricorn pulls out all the stops of manipulativeness, telling her that if Weld were here, then Weld would be on his side. Yeah, it's it's abs- like I think I think Sveta describes it as the most manipulative shit, Capricorn, which it. It is absolutely the most manipulative shit, Capricorn, but but it has a certain logic to it. And this this brings me to a question that I think I'm going to pose a lot throughout the next chapter, which is um, how much of Tristan's 
tendency to manipulate situations is him doing it consciously. I mean, there are certainly moments in that chapter that he does do it consciously. I think the choice made at the end of the chapter is conscious manipulation. But how much of them are they like? Is he aware here that he's being super manipulative or is he just like thinking the things that pop into his head? You know, I don't don't know. He's just like, how do we how do I achieve the goal here? Right. And I think that's the thing about Tristan that we're going to get into is that he gets the tunnel vision. He gets the like eyes on the prize mentality. Right. And it be, it becomes really easy to justify anything that serves his goal. Sure. Um, and he doesn't step back from it and think about like, um, is this actually shitty? Yeah. So a bunch of prison guards shoot at our heroes um, and the uh, basically everybody takes a bullet. But luckily, they all have their own form of durability, even if it's just Tristan's heavy armor. Uh, and then they get to cover as the sun sets. Did you so, think um, did you think there was a chance that any of them were actually hit and like possibly really mortally wounded? And and for just like a quick beat, did you think I, that I had I had actually a suspicion that Capricorn um, was actually shot and like the blood dripping from his glove later was like actually his blood. And he was not he was just kind of like um, playing it off. But I don't think that's the case. Yeah, it could be. Like, I'm not like, I'm not willing to completely rule that out, but I think the blood is symbolic of something very specific and that yeah. would kind of ruin that. Right. It made I mean, I it would be a fun like twist, but also it would be like, well, that doesn't quite work symbolically anymore. But mm-hmm. yeah. Um so yeah, I actually did think that maybe Tristan had been um had been shot. So yeah, breakthrough attacks these guards going for a non-lethal approach despite the live fire being directed against them. They quickly find that some of the guards are teacher thralls with enhanced combat abilities. The martial artist woman gets fairly thrashed by Sveta and the wretch, and Capricorn beats the shit out of the sniper. Crystal Clear and Rain then join the others on the ground. Yeah, and the the Capricorn beating the shit out of the sniper is the standout moment here. Um, Just the way he does it, the kind of mindlessness of it. I think this, this comes into importance in the next Victoria chapter for sure as she kind of confronts him on this, but... I think we are kind of subtly laying some groundwork for the chapter to come for the for the interlude in which Tristan, um, as you said, gets tunnel vision, loses himself a little bit, gets desperate and takes things too far and makes bad choices. Um, We're going to see what other bad choices he can make when he takes things too far. Yep. Can't wait. (laughs) Um, So I, I like this bit here where she's she's thinking uh but that hurt was almost welcome hurt was part and parcel of wearing the costume being in that zone of being a cape it was me not being victoria for just a little while a different headspace one of two safe refuges and looking at my phone i could see that i might need to tap the other the powers scholar um so like we've been talking about it up to this point but like for me this was a moment where she where it, it's not just happening in her head she's thinking about it um explicitly that this this idea of moving between identities yeah um like like thinking about thinking about the different identities that she has and consciously taking refuge in different identities rather than sort of doing it automatically yeah just like out of a desperate attempt to not completely lose it yeah um it, it is it is very aware, right? You have to have a, a very strong, like awareness of yourself to be able to do stuff like this. Um, 
and I think it's really fascinating. And and this only increases more as she like that. That's why I think the end of of nine eleven works so well because like she's just like swapping in between them like as fast as Tristan and Byron were swapping, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely love that connection of we have these the interlude is guys who yeah. swap literally swap identities um, in in the same body, of course. Uh, and and here she's swapping identities to literally leverage the different powers of those identities. They're yeah. not superpowers, but they're, uh, you know, affinities or abilities. Yeah. It, it was at this moment that I started getting a little worried, though. I mean, like the. I think this is a fantastic coping mechanism. It seems to be working really well. But again, we have to think about, OK, what happens next? What about tomorrow? You're doing this now. Is this is this throwing your worldview off so much that when the dust clears, are you going to be a wreck? And I think I think later chapters will kind of show that maybe it's a lot more positive than I felt in this moment. But right now it's like I'm worried for Victoria. Yeah, yeah, I think this is going to be one of those classic uh, disagreements between us where we actually uh, end up um, not disagreeing. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, because like, because I, I, I don't actually remember how exactly I felt the first time I read this, but on the whole, I felt that um, this is this is growth. Actually, like this is not. I mean, it's bad that she's in this situation, but I feel like the way she's handling the situation demonstrates growth. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that for sure. Yeah. All right. So. Um, and Terry's checks her phone and notes that Blindside and Kingdom Come are entering the complex, accompanied by our favorite monster, Lung. Oh, good. I missed, I missed him so much. And the chapter ends with, we can do this, Capricorn said, with a courage and conviction that I 100% did not believe rang true after seeing his hand shake like that. He looked back at the guards that had backed off after hearing about the moles as, as if for validation. We've got this. And then chapter 9.y opens, we can do this, Tristan said. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a really wonderful um, connecting beat between the two chapters. And I think it gets you into the mindset um, of Tristan almost immediately. Because like in the Victoria chapter, he was bullshitting. Like he, he with, with courage and conviction that I 100% did not believe rang true. And then we cut to uh, the past is he bullshitting this courage and conviction as well? Um, how much of Tristan's cockiness is affect and how much is, you know, honestly what he believes? Yeah, I, I think it's a huge amount of it is affect or 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 bluster or bravado. Yeah. Right. It's um, yeah. And, the, and, the, and yeah. the fascinating thing about him and I'm, I'm jumping ahead again, Matt, I guess that's going to be like the theme of this episode. But <laughs> the fascinating thing about him is even when you're in his point of view, he very he he very rarely lets down that that affect that bravado. Um, even in his internal monologue, it's still kind of there. Um, there there are moments there are moments of weakness that we get to see being in his head, but for the most part, he he keeps that up. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's also psychologically realistic because it's it's a it's a coping mechanism for him yeah. um, to, to deal with his own insecurity and his own issues he has this reflect like reflexive like the way he thinks about Byron which we're going to get into is is like a reflexive def- defense yeah. that is act- that actually takes the form as a, a, of an offense yeah so yeah we begin this interlude with a heading uh Byron suggesting that uh we might be getting not Byron which of course turns out to be the case later on so Byron looks out 
uh, from Tristan's eyes, and we begin uh, what is obviously a continuation of what was set up in the last Byron interlude. Uh, but I think this chapter also serves as something of a self-contained story. I agree. And and I think maybe this is the best time to talk about the the structure employed in this episode, this idea that we're going to be jumping back and forth between the two brothers' point of view as we go through the chapter. Um, I, I, comparing this to last interlude, I think I probably got more emotional reading the Byron interlude the first time, but I think this is better Um, And it feels weird to compare two things that I liked a lot, but I just really I think I enjoyed this one better due to the structural device. I think like cutting back and forth between the two of them serves to, in my opinion, kind of emphasize the ways in which they're similar and the ways in which they're different and the ways in which their differences and their similarities combine to escalate the conflict between them. And it it gets like a feeling of buildup, right? Like I think I described it on Twitter as um, like you see these two cars they're they're on the road driving towards each other and we're cutting back and forth between each of them as they make their way down the road knowing that they're going to meet in the middle sometime and something's going to happen and and that's like exactly what happens in this chapter yeah yeah right and and also like um we're we're not we're not going to be hard on Byron too much but like one of the salient things about this chapter is that um he's he's missing things and his missing things are leading us uh to the conclusion that we get and that's so there's sort of i don't think dramatic irony is actually the right word because we don't actually know what's going to happen either it's more like we're watching a character miss things yeah and and then it's, it, this is yet another chapter that greatly rewards rereading because you have to reread and think and and, and think okay when when does tristan come up with this plan what what are the clues and um and and then you you see them and you see Byron miss them yeah i think because of where his right. focus is yeah. yeah yeah so um team reach is camping paris's hideout and tristan is angry and frustrated and moonsong seems to actually understand why uh, but helps tristan out by framing tristan's intensity as being in response to paris's escalation saying, you know, that, that we're seeing worse incidents with shorter times between each. Man, Moonsong sure is an interesting character, isn't she? Um, she definitely has these bad opinions of LGBT people, um, like terrible, bigoted opinions. But she gets this immediately. She gets who Paris targets and why this is so personal for Tristan. And I think it's interesting that, like, he doesn't... The, the read here is that Tristan doesn't want everyone else to know um and she's kind of like by by deflecting and saying it's something else she's kind of protecting a secret like having his back there but i i'm not sure why tristan like would be so guarded about that kind of thing yeah yeah i i agree i mean it it's i guess he is being just generally guarded about his sexuality like he yeah he he, he i mean they all i guess they all know about it yeah but, he's he's out yeah um kind of yeah i mean he is he's out but yeah he is very guarded about and i think i think to me that ties back to his general insecurity that like um maybe showing that getting emotional about this this guy that hurt a person i liked um because of their orientation um would show weakness and he's very uncomfortable with showing any kind of any kind of weakness yeah and i mean it could just simply be that he thinks that she's gonna like judge him 
and is like preemptively mad at her about that. But actually she's, she's just trying to support him because we've, I mean, we pointed out last, uh, last, um, episode actually that she, she actually at least appears to support him. Yeah. Like, like, um, as a leader, like she, it's not like she's trying to undermine him for all her faults. She actually seems to support him as a team member. Yeah. And I mean, I think, again, we're in Byron's head. So we see Byron's read of this whole thing where he says she's being clever and that usually brings closer people closer together. Yet Tristan thinks she's betraying him. And that's, that's one of the the strikes that, that Byron uses against Tristan is that mm-hmm. look like she, this girl, I like, she's trying to be nice to you. She's trying to connect with you and you're just completely rejecting it. Um, I mean, like I, I think Moonsong bothers Tristan way more than he ever is comfortable saying out loud. Um, we see hints of it throughout this chapter. And um, I think Byron constantly underplays how much how much Moonsong in general is a person that Tristan can't stand for very understandable reasons. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that exact bit in a little bit, I think. Yeah. Um, so this is, um, you know, like I mentioned a minute ago, another chapter that that requires a reread uh, because what Byron focuses on tells us a lot about Byron, um, but causes us to miss the hints that Tristan is scheming. Yeah. And I think we're going to talk a lot about where we think Tristan's evil scheme started. Um, I have my own theory. I don't know if it matches up with yours, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, we're, we're again seeing how perspective and how what we look at frames how we take the world in and it's going to be fun to talk through that. Yeah. Um, so, so Paris does eventually show up though. He's a big, tall athletic dude. And Tristan says that they're going to attack him once he's inside the locker. Uh, hopefully as he's getting changed figurehead points out that this is a borderline violation of the rules and Tristan just brushes this off. Yeah, and so we're doing a lot of work here early in the chapter to establish just how far Tristan is willing to go in this situation. Um, he's he's seeing red, and he doesn't care about the rules anymore. He doesn't care about the game. Um, he just wants to take this guy down. It's interesting to me that nobody calls him on this. Like he, I think you're right. It's figurehead that says like, "Well, what if he doesn't have his mask on?" And his response is like, uh, "Well." It's his decision if he wants to pick it up on his way out of the room. And that's not really an answer. And like yeah. no one says, well, hang on. Hold on a minute. Um, and, and that's like, I think, a common theme we see with Tristan. And I think something that that understandably frustrates Byron so much is that like no one there's no one there to call him on his bullshit sometimes. Like like sometimes you need someone there to be like, dude, hold up. Hang on. What, what you're doing right now is ridiculous. And I think neither of the brother brothers have that person really to call them on their shit. Um, normally it would be each other, but like they're, they can't talk. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a really good point because like they're, they're potentially each other's like perfect foil. Like, like yeah. Byron, Byron can be the voice of caution for Tristan and Tristan can be the voice of like encouragement and confidence for Byron, but in an ideal world, yeah, in, in an ideal world, like, like that's like, that's kind of the ultimate tragedy of it is like, they're, they're great compliments to each other in terms of personality, but they, they, uh, they, they don't see that. They basically squander the, that what is actually an opportunity. Yeah. Um, which I think is kind of true of a lot of siblings actually. Cause it's like, like here's this person who should be your ultimate ally why are you being this way yeah because humans um, 
Yeah, also, exactly. also because the aliens put you in the same body and, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> that kind of stuff <laughs> tends to happen. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I agree with all that. That's a, that's a good point. So Tristan then creates a large ramp of stone funneling toward the door of the storage locker and then makes a huge pillar of stone in the air and switches with Byron so that the pillar becomes water. The water hits the funnel and slams through the door, flooding the locker, which is an awesome use of their power yeah. in shows how versatile they are I, I just like the this like minor difference between the brothers that tristan accentuates his power use with hand gestures even <laughs> when he doesn't need to and byron doesn't yeah I, it's great it, tristan is all external right byron is kind of a very insular internal person so he doesn't feel the need to do any of that but that's tristan's game right there that's and that's why people like him because people <laughs> like people that do that kind of stuff yeah exactly it's just it's just the way sadly it's the way people work yeah, it's basically extroversion in a, in a nutshell, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. So Byron acknowledges to himself at this point, as the fight starts, that caping around with his brother is the only thing they can do together and both enjoy. Yeah, this is, I think, the most heartbreaking thing about all this, is that for a brief moment here, and especially at the end of the chapter, you can see a, a hazy future of what this relationship in a, a, a repaired, recovered, um, healthy way could be right um they they them working together them in tandem them being teammates they, they they both enjoy doing this thing and when they work together they can do it um but it's just not it's just not meant to be at least at least now um there's yeah. just too many underlying problems um and i love that how the text accentuates this because as byron's describing this like this that he loves doing this, that he really enjoys it, that doing it with his brother is like the one thing they have in common. Um, Wildbo cuts those thoughts off and has Tristan sprint away from the rest of the group and leave them all behind. So it's like she's daydreaming about what this could be. And Tristan cuts him off by taking off and, and leaving everyone. Yeah. And, and then of course, as we see, not like not really adequately switching back to Byron like ever yeah. in, in the rest of the yeah. fight, as, as we'll see. Um, and then as Tristan's like running running towards uh paris um uses this cool twist of his power that i don't know if we've seen before where he punches his glowing moats and he gets like a spiked gauntlet effect oh, it's so badass yeah it's super uh, violent <laughs> yeah it, the, the whole the whole like him like like marching toward paris is so is so like aggressive and, and awesome yeah so yeah, as the team ambushes Paris, we see other little tricks of Tristan's, like making small spikes on the ground that Paris steps on, hurting himself. Uh, Steam Wheel quickly gets taken out of action uh, due to sucking really bad. Oh, poor Steam Wheel. <laughs> Steam Wheel doesn't really do anything throughout any of this. You know, in the next fight, they do a lot better, actually. Um, but uh, not in this one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think we have to point out again that one of the things Tristan is doing or rather not doing in this section is working with his teammates at all. He's rarely switching out to Byron. He's not communicating to everyone. And Byron sees this as lack of trust, as selfishness, and he interprets it um, very, very negatively. And, and it could be that for sure. But I think he's just he's gone. Tristan's a shark and he's gone into his tunnel vision again and he wants to be the one that takes this guy down and he's not looking at anything else but the bad guy yeah uh there, there's a moment a little bit on when i have like a, even a different reason for why he might be doing that which i'm, I'm less confident in but it, it is interesting to consider 
like anytime Byron says like the reason Tristan's doing this is X, I, I almost reflexively want to be like, oh, but it could also be Y or Z. <laughs> so, um, which, uh, yeah. Um, so, hey, Scott, is Paris a cluster mate of foil and March? Because we've got physics breaking projectiles, pretty good accuracy, uh, which may be enhanced. Foil and March probably triggered about five years before this fight happens, which, you know, given a few reasonable assumptions. So Paris would be experienced, as Byron says he is. Um, and uh, also, he seems to have a, a big vendetta against LGBT people. Is this a, this a Matt speculation? I mean, it's definitely a Matt speculation. Yeah, it is, it's, I guess. It's a, it's a good one. But Matt, I have, I have a question for you. Uh-huh. How do we tie that narratively into the story we're reading? Because that's where the best speculations come from. It's true. I mean, w- we do have an element of, of cluster triggers being Im- being important in this story uh, via that connection with March, um, via the, the connection with Rain and his cluster. Um, so so I'm, I'm a little bit primed to be looking for connections with clusters. That, that's not really what you meant by thematically, though. No. That's more like plot-matically. Um, well, is okay. Is Paris dead? Do we know that for sure? I mean, we know Tristan murders or there's a murder. Um, we, yeah, I don't think we know if Paris is dead or not. Yeah. Okay. So I, it's a fine speculation, Matt. It's a well-reasoned. We'll see. It's just, it's just not the, it's just not a Scott quality speculation I mean, that you're saying. No, it's definitely not. That's fine. Uh, all right. So I'm just going to write it in now just to, just to make you win. No, I don't. I don't deserve to, to win that way, Scott. I want to win clean. Whatever. So during the fight, Tristan ignores Moonsong's injury to focus on Paris. And the text says, in that moment, Byron hated Tristan. Ooh, there's so much venom there. Yeah. And and look, I think it's absolutely true that Tristan is selfish as fuck here. Um, and, and it's probably because he's so selfish and self-absorbed that they lose this fight. But again, I go back to Byron's read on this whole thing is he doesn't trust me. He doesn't switch out because he doesn't trust me. And and therefore he chooses not to switch. And I don't think that's completely untrue, because as we switch to Tristan's point of view in a few minutes, his view of his brother is that he's like a weak, incompetent loser that can't do anything right. So I, I get that. But I do think that this decision to go out all alone was less about a lack of trust and more about being blinded by hate and rage and it took him over and that's, that's what happens to Tristan. So, um, I think once again, we have brothers like seeing actions and assuming intent behind it. And I think the the differing between the action that you observe and the intent behind the action is such an important disconnect in their relationship. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and we'll, we'll see that I think in the opposite direction when we're in Tristan's mind. Yeah, absolutely. So now the Furcates and Coiffure wade into a pretty brutal melee with Paris but Paris fights them off really well, almost as if he has some kind of enhanced timing or superhuman sense of angles okay, or distances. Okay, Matt, get off your damn speculation horse. Let's oh, move right. on. So Paris escapes in a cloud of chaff, and then we get this. He's getting away, Tristan said, and he sounded hollowed out, far from any Tristan Byron had ever witnessed. And this prompts me to wonder... Um, at what point does Tristan conceive of his plan? At what point does this stop really being about be being about catching Paris? Because I believe him here when he says he hates Paris and that that was his goal. Yeah, I, I believe 
him too. I, my short answer in that is I, I think this is not the moment he started formulating his plan. I think he absolutely tells the truth here. He wanted to take down Paris. He wanted to get him and he loses. And Tristan does not handle loss very well. Um, The way he measures um, winning and losing is very different. Um, He sees it like if you lose, it is your fault. It is entirely your fault. And that's kind of the way he looks at things. And we'll see that directly in, in his comparison to Byron later, but, um, one, one of the things I think that this chapter does so well is leave each and every section with this note of terrible, terrible ominousness that you're like, you leave, you, you transfer over to the other brother with, oh shit at the back of your head. And that's like exactly what happens here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, so now we switch over to Tristan's POV. Uh, which is first time in the story we get that. Yep. And this is, again, mostly Tristan watching Byron's actions. And I love this conceit for how this chapter works, that we learn more about both brothers when we're watching the actions of one through the eyes of the other. Yeah. Um, so here they're at church and Byron has brought his girlfriend Moonsong along to show off. Yeah, I, I really like how that works, too. And I think that's just... um. I think that's just people, right? You learn more about people by by how they react to other people than by how they what they tell you about themselves. Yeah, right. And and at this point, we I, I like this too because at this point we have enough of a model of Byron and how Byron thinks that when Tristan makes an assertion about Byron, we actually can be like, well, I don't think that is actually like the reason why Byron would do that. Yeah, you know, like, like like Byron has his own reason, and it's not because he's a weak piece of shit like you <laughs> seem to think. Um, so yeah, we, we see, um, we see what annoys Tristan about Byron and it's, it's actually just all the little things. It's the nothing things that build up into big things like a tiny rock in your shoe, making a blister. Um, it, it's just the things that build up when you live with somebody. He's annoyed that Byron has to read the hymnal. He's annoyed that Byron lets people go ahead of him. He's annoyed that Byron overlooks Moonsong's faults. Um, and it's just like, it's, it's beyond just being annoyed. It's he's, he's borderline seething about it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And they come off as so, so petty. Right. Um, but as someone who lived with a roommate that bugged me for like a year, that shit gets annoying real fast, yo. Um, uh-huh. but look, I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right that he's still doing the same thing that Byron is doing is that he's assuming intent behind it. I think the hymnal is the perfect example of this because, because Tristan tells the story of ever since he could, he could sing and read at the same time. He's played this game, um, this challenge to see how much he could memorize, seeing how long he could go before he had to check the hymnal. He made a game out of it. And, um, that's a cool game, Tristan, but that doesn't mean that Byron plays that game. That doesn't mean like, he doesn't place value in memorizing the lyrics or maybe he has the lyrics memorized and just likes to read along with them because there are people that even if you know all the lyrics to the song, sometimes reading along with them in your songbook is an enjoyable thing to do. But he he sees that as childishness, that he hasn't grown up. He ha- He's still doing the same things I did as a kid and therefore he's still a little kid. And it's just like, dude, you're just you're just assuming things again. 
Right. Like reading the hymnal is just like you have to put your eyes somewhere. Right. Why what, not yeah. put them on the thing you're singing? Show me to look <laughs> at the ceiling, I guess. But like that's what's funny is is I, I I can also empathize with being really annoyed about inconsequential stupid shit. So yeah. Um, I mean, not that I'm saying like it's good. It's just like yeah. I mean, I've been there. Yeah. It's it's not I'm not proud of it. It's just it's just what humans do. Yeah. So yeah, there's. <laughs> After after church, there's an almost comedic, if it wasn't so sad, moment where some old ladies just can't believe that Byron has a girlfriend. Yeah, and they also like call him Tristan, and then uh-huh. don't remember his name. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I like how Byron says, "I'm the other one." Like that shows yeah. like how he like he just he's just like been beaten down and values himself so little that he's like, and, and it's kind of understanding that you value yourself so little when all the fucking people around you keep reinforcing that. And it's because Tristan is so outgoing, so loud, so noticeable that people notice him. And yeah. so like, like, I don't think these old ladies walked up saying, I'm going to fuck up this kid's day. Um, they just, <laughs> they just, they just, they knew Tristan and that's the person they knew. Yeah. Um, but there's this there's this one part that really jumps out at me, though, um, like it's him talking to the old ladies and the old lady says, I think um, that she knew their grandmother and was friends with her or I don't know, something. And she said she was lovely. Tristan always took after her, I feel naturally athletic, charming, go getters, both of them. You've met Tristan, I'm sure. And this is talking to Moonsong. I have met him. Yes. And Tristan's response is. You deserve this, Byron. And your initial reaction to that is like, fuck you. That's fucked up because it sure is a dick thing to say. But I I do think this gives us a pretty big hint at at Tristan's whole worldview and his whole brother view, Um, because because he doesn't because Byron does not value the same stuff that Tristan does. He sees him as weak because he's allowing this conversation to go on because he's not like ending the conversation or taking control of it he deserves what he's getting. Cause it's like, if I were in this situation, I would have either not let these ladies walk up to me. I would have walked away or I would have like grabbed hold of the conversation when they started like being rude shits to me. And because Byron didn't do that, it's a weakness. Yeah. I mean, he literally views it as like Byron, it's, it's your choice to be a pushover. Right. And you don't, you don't have to be like this. And like that, I mean, this was their whole trigger event fight was Byron being like, I, I, this is this is who I am. And then Tristan being like, well, this is who I am. And, and I mean, yeah, they, they, they haven't actually even resolved the, the fight that led to the right. trigger event, that that is still a, a stink in the air yeah. between them. The, the, the basic difference between them is why are you not more like me? Yeah. And, you know, what's funny, uh, especially this quote you pulled out, it, it kind of exemplifies like um, the, 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 the old woman says Tristan's naturally athletic and i thought that was funny because it's like they have the same dna (laughs) that's true so if if tristan's naturally athletic then then like by definition so is byron Uh, (laughs) that's very true um, but but like so so and then this got me onto a line of thinking about like the narcissism of small differences and uh, if people aren't familiar it's just the idea that like the more similar you are to someone or or the more simple, I think it's usually used in context of groups. Like if there are two groups of people who have like almost exactly the same beliefs, except, you know, one of them has a slight difference in, in uh, interpretation of dogma, then they'll be like the worst enemies in the world and hate each other. <laughs> where, whereas they won't care too much about 
someone far away and, and, and very different from them. And it's, yeah. it's the same thing here between these two individuals where like they're so similar that every difference between them becomes like a point of just like bitter hatred. Yeah. And, like uh, and, and, and that, and it's also tragic obviously, cause it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, it's a waste. That's I, I, you, at the very beginning of this chapter, you said this was like a great mini story. And I think you're right. This is, I mean, you, you pluck this out and throw it down and it's, it's a, it's a Greek tragedy in five parts basically. Um, mm-hmm. and like it's so you could see the fact that wild boat teases us with what it could be makes it all the more tragic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. And that's something I think we're mainly picking up in this chapter, this idea of what it could be. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Moonsong though, does at least stand up for Byron. <laughs> so like later on, uh, they're in the car with the parents and the parents are like, uh, basically justifying not spending any time with Byron and spending all their time with Tristan. <laughs> and she she says, like, you know, he's like, I, I used to take him out for ice cream. I, I didn't think Byron liked ice cream, Papa said. I don't mind it, Byron said, timid. Come on, everybody likes ice cream, you <laughs> asshole. Yeah, who doesn't fucking like ice cream? But I, I think here's the thing about Byron. Here's the thing that the part of Byron that I think Tristan is actually correct about. He's a very passive person. Um, he, he doesn't speak up. He doesn't, um, like I bet that when Tristan, the reason, the, the reason like Tristan and his dad did ice cream after the game was because after the game, Tristan said, dad, I want ice cream. I, give me ice cream. Right. And Byron is not the type of person that will do that. He will not go to his father and say, I want this. And, and we see that here because even as they've just brought this up and, his dad has said, oh, you're right. We haven't watched movies in a while. We should do that. Like, do you want to do that? Byron's like, no, it's OK. And Tristan reads that as nothing but weakness. Like he he calls him gutless in this moment because obviously Byron wants to hang out with his parents. Of course, he of course, he wants to watch a movie with his dad. Of course, he wants that kind of interaction that he feels Tristan takes most of. But his personality is not the type where he will actively seek that out it it it, it, he he kind of he's a passive person like he wants his dad to come to him and say let's do this he doesn't want to have to ask his dad and i identify with that a lot because i tend to be that type of person like when some of my friendships like i remember like some days like sitting there on a friday night being like why aren't my friends texting me (laughs) I was like, well, Scott, did you text them? No, because I want them to want me around. Why aren't they texting me? Like, so that's a very relatable thing for me. Yeah, right. And and I mean, the the social dynamics of of, of that scenario and, and this scenario are basically like he doesn't want his dad to like invite him for ice cream out of like obligation right. and guilt. Exactly. He yeah. wants his dad to want to invite him for ice cream. Yeah. And so, like, it's not because he's gutless that he's that he's saying no, not you at know, all. No, thanks. It's it's because he's like sad that somebody had to like bring up to his dad that they don't hang out anymore, and then he's like, well, never never mind. If you're not just gonna come ask me for it, then it doesn't actually mean anything because yeah, does doesn't mean you want to spend time with me. And the interesting thing is, I think, and and this is supposition. I'm not sure, but I think Byron would blame this on Tristan, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the reason why his dad is not coming to him to go to the movies or to eat ice cream is because 
Tristan is taking all, all his time with his dad. And so he's doing it with him. But at, at some point, you just got to blame the people that are actually doing the things. I mean, it's like as as a, a parent of these kids, and I know it's a it's a terrible, terrible situation that you are no way equipped for. But as the parents of these kids, you have to understand your kids a little bit better and like look out for them. And I feel like I feel like his dad is not doing that for Byron. And and Byron naturally puts that all on his brother, like who he hates at this point. But come on, dad. Come on. Yeah, right. I mean, there's there's an interesting fact about families and, and siblings, which is that like parents will always vehemently deny um, that they have a favorite child. <laughs> um, but the research shows that like if you ask the children in any given unit of siblings, who's the favorite child, they'll all agree on who the favorite child is. <laughs> um, so, so like the, the implication being that parents actually like like empirically have favorite children they just really don't like the idea that they do and and will deny it yeah and it's pretty clear that their favorite child is Tristan yeah and i i get it he's probably easier he's outgoing he makes friends better he probably requires less work you know um and that's not fair but that's the way it is yeah but right. they need to be better parents probably and and I, yes. I, I you don't see Byron like blame his dad for this. He doesn't I mean, we're not in his perspective, so we don't know for sure. But based on what we've seen of his interactions, this is it's Tristan's fault because he's manipulating my parents um, to to focus on him and not on me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because like Tristan seems really angry, um, resentful. Yeah. And. And he's just not doing great mentally because he, he thinks he had to do something because he couldn't keep feeling this way. He'd die. Yeah. And and this is I, I find this really fascinating, Matt, because we had all these talk about these petty surface level complaints, right? Like you read lyrics, you talk to old ladies, you walk too slow. But I think I think what's going on here is I think Tristan's a very guarded person. And and while those things do bother him, um, he also has does a really good job of hiding his real like extreme issues pretty well. But I think the end of the section where we're at right now is pretty revealing about the big things that annoy him and, and, are, and are actually bothering him. Right after he says that, he says the closer they were to Brianna to Moonsong, the more distant for the rest of everything felt from Tristan. So like this lady bugs him like he I, I, I don't know if I want to use hate. It, he probably does hate her. Um, and, and all the little things that he leans on to bother him so much are indeed things that bother him. But I think it's it's having to be around this person a lot that is really kind of driving him to the edge. Yeah, like, like you pulled out last last episode, I, I, I really agree that we aren't really privy to exactly how much that multi hour long conversation got under his skin and we aren't really privy to why, like I think Byron's assumption about why that bothered him is not really accurate. Yeah. It's, it's more than that. And it's more complex than that. I think. Well, and I think, I think Tristan's thing is like, even in this moment, he's not completely honest. Like if we had seen that moment from Tristan's perspective, I don't know if he would have come right out and said it, either because he just seems so guarded about that stuff he's so Mm -hmm. um like 
he he can admit at times how much he dislikes Moonsong, how much he he she she bugs him. Um, but it's like he's afraid to admit why. And I yeah. still think he's he's this kid with a lot of insecurity underneath him. And I think kind of the fact that his point of view like doesn't show that insecurity almost means I believe it even more. <laughs> yeah, um, he's he's even more he's like he can't even admit it to himself. Right. Which like a confident person can think about their weaknesses, right? Like that's yeah, <laughs> that's a a, a a insecure person has to continually like narrativize why they're right. Yeah. And to be clear, I am not saying any of this justifies his behavior. I'm just trying to find the root cause of that behavior. Yes, yes, and, and I think he's actually a harder nut to crack. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I think Byron. Um, is more introspectively. I mean, we haven't seen much of Tristan's like introspection, yeah. to be honest. But I, I feel like Byron's more introspectively aware. Um, he's just not very aware of Tristan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but Tristan, not only is he not aware of Byron, but he's also not really seemingly too aware of himself. Yeah, which I think kind of goes to show you like the 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 malevolence behind his actions that Byron so often puts there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's quite that cut and dry. Yeah. So, yeah, we switch back to Byron as Tristan Smooth talks his way through a therapy session. And I I do think it's worth pointing out here in the therapy session that I don't think Tristan is knowingly lying. I think that he really thinks that he would have stopped himself with Nate, uh, stopped himself from going further. Or he's convinced himself that that's true, even if deep down maybe he knows it isn't. And none of this absolves him, of course, but it's more just to point out that this interaction with the therapist, I don't think is pure manipulation. It's more like spin and persuasion wrapped around his actual earnest issues, which we do know that he's genuinely struggling with. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And that that goes in what we were just talking about, that that Byron sees malevolence in that. And and, and I, I don't think it's there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think this Nate issue is actually like a, a good example of the, the crux of their entire the, the gulf between them. Tristan has convinced himself that he 100 percent would have stopped. Like there's no question in his mind. I would have stopped. Byron has convinced himself that Tristan 100 percent would not have stopped. And neither is willing to budge on this. These polar opinions where the truth is probably like somewhere in the middle, like Tristan might have stopped. He might have gotten too far into it. Like, it, it, like I just the fact that they're so on the, these poles on this agreement and like refuse to budge. I think that's their whole deal. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I think like I don't know. There's 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 a few things here. It, it's interesting. Like this is definitely representative of of how uncharitable they are to each yeah. other. I'll, I'll definitely agree with that. Well, yeah. And 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 importantly, like even if this is subconscious manipulation on behalf of Tristan, he's still manipulating the doctor, right? Like he still, mm-hmm. he still took three fourths of the therapy session meant for both of them. Um, and that's still a wrong thing to do. But, um, I think it's much more interesting to see like why he behaves this way and why it's more than just, he's bad. He's bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it, all this all this is really interesting in context of like um how the story starts where they're in the therapy session and um I'm, I'm just sort of thinking over the first scenes we had where byron didn't really want to be involved in the therapy too much like, like he didn't even show up until after um after everyone left yeah 
uh, from the from the first session, and, and it's a lot of this information in, in this scene specifically is kind of contextualizing that. Yeah, I think you're right. I kind don't of want to go back and read that actually. So yeah, then we switch POV back to Tristan, uh, and we're seeing a later conversation with Vaughn. And here Tristan is actually controlling you know the body, and Tristan apparently went to a party at uh, some time recently and got passed out drunk. And Byron has brought this to Vaughn because he knows the guy will put the kibosh on this. Yeah. And of particular interest is this one part where Byron says um, every day since we could form partial sentences, he's been he's been trying to talk to him. I've come out with one win, one case where we disagreed and I got what I wanted or needed. And Tristan's thought is sounds about right. That's your fault, not mine. And that again, is an asshole thing to say, but it is so instructive of Tristan's worldview and how he looks at winning or losing. If you lose, it's because you're weak. And s- since Byron loses more than I do, he's weak. And and I think I think that's like so it's so fascinating to me because I think that also reflects how why he's taking the loss to the, the failure to get Paris so hard, because that is uh, seen as the reason he lost that fight is because he was too weak. Um, and that kind of ties into his insecurities. And, and that's why he that's why he obsesses with the like Byron correctly says this is the type of thing that you're going to obsess about. And he's right because he doesn't do well with losing. Yeah. And, you know, I think to, to kind of briefly go back to that concept of the narcissism of small differences, like the reason the reason Tristan is so like and like beyond annoyed um, and like almost rankled by, by 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 what he perceives as Byron's weakness is that he can't stand weakness in himself. And seeing the weakness in Byron is is like seeing the threat of that weakness in yeah. himself. Yeah, and I think you're right. It, it's it's uh, it, it makes him like you can all you can almost like maybe this is almost too charitable actually. But you can almost think that he's just like. In, in in his heart, like rooting for Byron, like, come on, you, you can be stronger than this. You know, we don't actually see any evidence of that. He really just seems to be very like um, scornful and disdainful of Byron. Well, one of one of the interesting things is that the way this is structured, we don't see from Tristan's point of view until after things have gotten really bad for him. Right. Mm-hmm. So like I I think that is a too charitable read for the Tristan that we're seeing in these chapters. But I wonder if we had seen Tristan from an earlier point of view, whether he would be doing that, whether he would like be, you know, secretly and privately hoping that um, that his his brother is more like him and finds the strength that he has and finds the confidence that he has and acts like him. And yeah, I, I think that's. Yeah. Part of me, like, part of me wishes we got to see that point of view. Like, we we got to see Byron right before the trigger, from his point of view. Part of me wishes we could have gotten to see Tristan in that same scene. But yeah, I was I was literally thinking about that exact scene because, like, I I actually still think that Tristan was just speaking his mind when he was saying, like, like you you just need to speak up more, yeah. be louder. Yeah. It's it's easy. Yeah. And like he he wasn't he he was being dismissive, but also that's what he actually thinks. So yeah. it's not like he's just. Yeah, I think he believes it's that easy. But in doing that, you're ignoring that some people just are have anxiety in social situations. And that's just the way they are. And like, you can't just tell them, no, just talk more. So, yeah, I mean, he's I think he's coming from a real place, but but being dismissive at the same time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, uh, Vaughn says no more drinking to excess. And Tristan immediately immediately becomes emotional and desperate and says this is his only outlet. Yeah. And and here he remarks that oh, you got another win, Byron. And um, 
he he credits the reason why he got the win to Moonsong, that he learned these techniques of winning from Moonsong. Once again, I think like a, a moment that betrays Tristan's feelings um, and, and the things that are really, really, really bothering him. Um, and it's yeah, that that's interesting because I, 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 you know, read it a couple of times and, and I, I don't know what exactly he means by that. Like just the idea of going to the boss with, with the thing that, that he knows, you know, he's, he's going to, he's going to, um, side with you on. Is that, is it because Moonsong is like a politician's daughter and cause it's a clever move? Uh, like it's like, it is a clever move because yeah. it works. Yeah. So is that what, like, but, but you're right though. Like that, like him connecting it to Moonsong it severely indicates that he's just super annoyed with Moonsong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it, I think it is that she's a politician's daughter and she, he clearly like points out like her politician smile and like that she's mm-hmm. good at that. Um, he sees her as a person that butts her head into situations that she doesn't belong in. So I think he's he's taking that action and, and laying it on Byron um, getting involved in this when he feels like he shouldn't have. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think it makes sense that he's pinning this on her, but I think it also betrays that that extreme emotion he has towards her that he tries to write off as just her being the smarmy politician, but I think is is a little more deep seated than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So somebody, I think like maybe in the cauldron discord uh, made a remark about Tristan's drinking and partying being disordered behavior. And I thought that was interesting, uh, especially that like what was interesting was that until they said that I really didn't like have the conscious thought of why does this 15 year old feel that he needs to drink heavily and be crazy in order to relax? Cause that's not really right. Yeah. And, and he thinks to himself like no passion, no wild abandon, no freedom, no time and less and less fun, no life. And it's like, that's uh that that's catastrophizing. Um, and, and that's also like being way too dependent on, on, on a behavior that's like pathological in the first place. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's an extremely unhealthy outlet, like for anyone, let alone for a kid. Um, and this is another one of those situations where I think Byron was right. Like, like the decision here, just like the decision with, with the sex stuff is probably the right one. Like you probably shouldn't be going out and getting smashed all the time. It's not good for you. And the fact that you need to do that is it means you're not doing great, dude. Um, but, but the, yeah. I think the interesting thing to me here then is, is Tristan considers this his outlet and that gets taken away. And because this is his outlet, he loses it. But Byron has, needs outlets too. And his outlets are much more acceptable because I'm guessing his outlet at this point is just Moonsong. Um, mm-hmm. assuming he's not like stabbing himself with a pen every night still. Um, right. but his, his outlet is, is a much more balanced and acceptable one. Um, all of Tristan's outlets are being taken away from him. So you like, you see how, yes, the thing he was doing is super unhealthy and he shouldn't be doing it, but you're also taking away, the only things he wants to do from him. And, and like, that's why you're seeing him like being driven into a corner. Yeah. And, and Tristan views this as a, as a battle that he's losing. Yeah. I, I don't know if I, I, I doubt that Byron views this as a battle that he's winning, but Tristan's like, you're taking everything. Not only are you taking everything away from me, but you get to have a girlfriend Yeah, and, and like everything's working out for, for Byron and I'm losing everything. Yeah. 
um, which again is like it's asymmetric because Byron isn't like on cloud nine. No, not he's, at all. He's, he's probably still having a really hard time. Yeah, I'm sure he is. Yeah. And yeah. if if you if you were to ask me, I think this is the moment that he starts formulating his plan. Um, he's mm-hmm. he's pushed into the corner. He he says here no life. Um, he specifically says like he's specifically thinking his life has been taken away from him. So the only thing the only recourse he has at this point is to take it back. And the only way he can do that is by getting rid of his brother. So this this to me is when the plan starts formulating. I think it's very telling that in this moment he immediately starts talking about Paris again, like right after he's gotten this this ruling from Vaughn. He says, please tell me we have some news on that asshole Paris. We don't. But you'll be the first to know the moment something crosses my desk. Please, Tristan said. He raised himself to a standing position. He walked over to the door and found himself unsure if he'd said it loud enough to be clear more firmly, he told Vaughn, please. And I think that's, that's Tristan's low point And the moment that he maybe not fully like formulates the plan, but makes the decision that he's going to act on, on this. Yeah. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure that I would put, let me put it this way. I wouldn't put a ton of confidence on that, but I, I think that's a great candidate for, for the moment. Yeah. Uh, so back with Byron, uh, back watching Tristan from the inside, we start round two with Paris. It's been a couple of months. Byron knows that Tristan found Paris online and tricked him into showing up. Um, but he doesn't know that the reason Tristan is being cagey with this information is that he doesn't want the other people to know about it so they won't follow up on it. Yeah, I wonder why that is. Yeah. <laughs> So before the fight starts, Tristan tells Byron that they'll be switching up rapidly in the fight, but he asks Byron to let him take the finish. Uh, Quote, so I can tell Nate I did. The team attacks, better organized, their tactics geared specifically for fighting Paris. Steam wheel sucks a lot less, uh, and Byron's power is now mostly ice rather than water. Matt, Tristan is being so understanding here. This is so great. Everything's, it's going to be fine. It's, It's great now. Yeah, they're getting along really well. Yeah, I'm curious as to your read on the changing powers now that we know a little bit more about the brothers. Like, so Byron started out as a gas, um, then went to uh, water, then went to ice, and then now in present day story is back at water. What do you think this says? Because Byron is or Byron is convinced that um, that it, it represented some growth within himself, right? That finding he found Brianna, he found assertiveness. Do you think it's it's as that Byron's accurate there? Uh, no, I mean j- just because that's too self-serving, <laughs> and that's not that's nothing that a shard would ever do. Yeah, also, yeah. Um, I mean, like like there, there's like a thematic explanation, and then there's a shard explanation. I think the shard explanation is just like um, t- testing things and sticking with what e- with either what works or what what it feels like it can learn more from. Um, but like a thematic explanation is is more like um, the, the the maybe like the the more the more aggressive of the brothers is um, but is is being rewarded by being allowed to keep the same power and refine it, whereas the less assertive and less like aggressive brother is being punished by having his power change because um, because we know that Shard like like. That is kind of a shard explanation, actually. <laughs> um, but I mean, I guess the thing is, the shards are thematic. So yeah, I mean, I, I think I don't think you're 
totally off base there. Um, I, th- there is something to the fact that Tristan's power has changed very slightly. Byron's power has changed regularly. Um, Tristan is kind of a more unchanging type of person, whereas Byron is like just things have been happening to him. And and, and he's I, I think it's interesting that like the ice specifically is interesting to me um, as this something that, that is that it is much more solid. It is much less flowing. So perhaps this is him approaching the levels of like unwavering unmovingness, which would tie into what he actually thinks of himself. But I don't know. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and we know also that like the power swings between them, like, like right you know, at, at the present time in the story, Tristan's power is really strong and, and Byron's is weaker. And we don't know why that is necessarily mm-hmm. from a shard or a thematic point of view, other than like, does it reflect something about who's winning the fight between the brothers? Yeah, yeah. And you could say like, like that Tristan feels like he's losing the fight and thus Byron gets to now use ice and maybe that's a better power. I mean, I don't know yeah. water actually seems better to me than ice, but we, we don't get to see much. But it's slippery. It is. But the water has mass <laughs> and flow. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I talked for a long time on this question and I have no idea what the answer is. I think so we answered it pretty well. All right. Um, so Tristan and Byron uh, get close to Paris and, quote, out of a weird sort of gratitude, Byron forms the spike for Tristan so that it will be ready when he emerges, which is just kind of a really tragic beat uh, on reread. It really is. Yeah. So they switch back and forth once more as Paris begins to throw long spikes, which easily take out the other team members. The final one hitting Tristan dead on and he's knocked down and he doesn't get up, although Byron knows that he could. And then Paris gets away. Um, And then Tristan tells the team that he can't switch back to Byron and that Byron is dead. (sighs) So... Here it is the the moment yep. the moment um the terrible horrible thing that he does to his brother here that is near unforgivable. I I look at this moment and I don't I don't know how they've even gotten to a a, a relatively okay position in present time, right? Like you look at something like that. I mean, we we have no idea how long this goes on for. Um but again, I think this is Tristan making a choice to fix the now without really thinking long term about what the consequences are thinking like I am very interested in seeing Tristan's state of mind in the day to day life of um, I've been pretending my brother is dead for months and I know he's right there behind me screaming. Um, I, I'm really interested in, in what that what that's going to look like. Yeah, I, I, me too. I mean, I in fact, ever since this chapter, I've been like, iterating on on like possible ways that he gets found out yeah. and and like is it is it out of his own guilt does he get caught because he makes a mistake is it like a telltale heart scenario um and 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 then of course like you just said thinking about like man like what what are those first few days look like after he inevitably inevitably switches back to byron yeah. like um how do they return to um, it's not even normalcy. It's more like a cold war. It, it's like, it's like, look, I, I know that my life is worse if I fuck over, if I fuck you over, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to be generous to you in any way. So it's, it's like a, it's like a detente. It's yeah. not a, it's not, um, at all generous. It's, it's, it's it, it, like, it seems like it's going to be worse than after the trigger event because 
at least the trigger event was like a moment of passion, whereas this is a premeditated, cold-blooded move. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's it's interesting because, like, he designed it this way, right? Like, if he really wanted to do the I'm going to pretend Byron died thing, like, it didn't have to be Paris. It, yeah. It's Paris because Paris killing Byron is is Tristan two birds, one stoning it, right? Like, he... Mm-hmm. Um, gets rid of the problem of his brother and now Paris has killed a cape. So now any any holding back that his team was going to make him do in an encounter with this guy is gone. He's going to have much more free reign because he, Paris just killed someone. That's a great point. Yeah, it's uh, just really excited to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do think it is interesting how like we talked about this a little bit earlier in the show, how this reframes a lot of Tristan's choices in the the present day. And we talked about how kind of insane it was to make that agreement with um, the hitman to do the fate worse than death thing. Well, um, Tristan did a fate worse than death thing to Byron for God knows how long. So it, it, it from from a Tristan perspective, it looks much more reasonable why you would say I need to put a safeguard up again because I'm going to be tempted to do this again. And the only way to stop myself from doing this is to to basically do to me what I did to to Byron in a different kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, it, and I think it's it's appropriate to ask as we move into this next chapter, like, do you think uh, this is the murder charged like the murder for which he's going to be charged i don't i don't think so um i don't know how that would work because obviously they're going to find out it's not there was no murder well i think potentially you find potentially they find out that he set up the encounter and then they say you set up your brother's murder yeah so you're the murderer but what Um, what part i mean what part would be set up that looks incriminating like did he cut a deal with Paris to to do this? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think he cut a deal with Paris because Byron would be aware of it. If he right. Did. I mean, that's 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 kind of the genius of this plan is that he he frames it around Paris and his obsession with Paris because that's the only way he can act without making it look suspicious to his brother. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know either. I mean, I'm I'm. I think what's great. I think like to, to zoom out for a second. I think what's awesome is that we've been primed and like set up to have a lot of assumptions about what Tristan did yeah. and what, and what it looked like. And it's been very carefully done in a way where, uh, we've, we've been misled, but when you, when you go back and look at the things that Tristan actually says, it never actually says much. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is all consistent. Like it, it could, this could very well be the murder or it could be something else. Well, and the thing that I love is this, this seems like the most obvious, terrible thing you could do when you think about it, but it, it didn't, the horror of it, I guess, prevented me from really t- like connecting with it. Like in retrospect, what's the worst thing you could do to your brother? Well, um, just pretend like just stop switching out, right? Like that's the, that's the worst thing you could do is stop switching out. And it didn't occur to me until it was unraveling that way that that's exactly what he probably did. And I thought this Mm -hmm. cool, like it's, it's the most obvious route, but the way we're, we're taken there doesn't make it feel obvious. So the reveal of what Tristan did works still. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. I, I, I kind of assumed that there was some point when he stopped switching out so that Byron wouldn't like tattle on him for what he did. 
but this is kind of the reverse of that where what he did was uh, stop switching out and <laughs> th- that was the crime in and of itself yeah yeah um all right so move on into 9.10 and a droplet of blood fell from capricorn's gauntlet so here we have that visual reference to to his verbal reference earlier in the arc of blood being on his hands yeah because it because it was literally because yep. <laughs> he killed his brother kind of yep. killed yep. kind of I, I, this is it's a it's a wonderful way to get us back into the story it connects to the the non-interlude chapter before it while also connecting back to the interlude it's just a really clever way to to get us right back into things and it, yeah. and the blood on the hands also serves as kind of the structural device of for the earlier parts of the chapter. Victoria cuts back to this idea of blood multiple times. It, it connects to her worry about her teammate, her worry about her own actions to that moment where she almost killed her sister and, and would have like definitely yeah. would have killed her if someone if something hadn't happened. Yeah, no, this is great because, like we mentioned, it's it's stitching together this Capricorn story with what's going on with Victoria at this moment, struggling with identity and um, struggling with violence and yeah. and e- even struggling with violence against a sibling specifically. <laughs> yep. Um, so despite being very on edge and perturbed by this visual image, uh, she tries to marshal herself to focus on Victoria, the cape, uh, the well-trodden, broken-in pattern of behavior that can get her back to functional. Oh, that that well-trodden, broken-in pattern of behavior that left Victoria being like a superly over-violent person that hurt people when she shouldn't? That that one? Yeah. That one? Yeah. Maybe that's who she needs to be right now. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> um, so the team has a brief conversation with Cole Belcher, uh, who seems not cool. Yeah, and I, I love... So in this moment, when they see Cole Belcher, the first thing he says is, and a villainous heroine. And Victoria replies, heroine. It's like this perfect moment of when Victoria is searching for identity and trying to to find who she is and, and how to survive the situation. The, someone approaches her and identifies her first as a villainous and then asks heroine. I think that's just a really subtle little beat that kind of enforces like the who are you? Yeah, right. I mean, especially because she's basically, a, she's, I mean, via mind whammy, she sort of is a villainess right, right now. Right, right, I mean, she certainly doesn't accept that and would vehemently argue against it, but she's working for goddess. Yeah, but Cole Belcher um, is another one of our, our, our things that tie into this week's theme of, of what about tomorrow? Because Rain pisses off Cole Belcher by kind of just dismissing him and running off to help goddess. And Victoria is like left having to try to clean up for him because um, she says, I had to think about the future, consider options. If we piss this guy off, we could win today and see rain suffer for tomorrow. So it's something that Victoria is like constantly aware of. Um, But interesting enough, I think she's aware of it with like external actions, but I don't I think she's less aware of it with like her internal coping, Um, like this idea that she's she's coping to survive today. But what's tomorrow going to look like? Yeah, no, I, I I like that, and I mean, I I think I'm not sure if I'm on exactly the same page about about what all of this means, um, but I, I'm I'm I find your take very very interesting, and I'm keeping an open mind about where this is going to lead. All right. So they make it a bit further, and then she sees Sveta's new um, outfit. Her tendrils are now wound through a protective mesh, which is fed through joined arm segments. Care of rain. Yeah. Which is, it's quite a shocking image, right? Uh, Sveta, the person who has wanted to be humanoid, 
kind of embracing non-humanoidness is yeah yeah and and so this also is it's kind of like identities shifting right it's like she's um she she can't she's not she's she's outwardly she her her issues are, are physical yeah so her representation of shifting identities is shifting bodies into a new body yeah and once again i'm doing this to survive now what about tomorrow yeah yeah, how am I going to feel about this yeah, later? Yeah. Team breakthrough. More like team breakdown. Ooh. Got him. <laughs> um, yeah. So they retrieve Swansong, who jumps down to join them. Uh, Damsel, the other Ashley, stays behind despite really wanting to see some action. Swansong mentions that she's also under goddess's sway. <laughs> and uh, there's some great, great like dialogue and, and like Victoria kind of like studying the other Ashley and thinking this wasn't the Ashley I'd come to know. This was the Ashley I could imagine working with the Slaughterhouse Nine. Yeah, it, this this whole interaction really jumped out at me. I, I mean, we continue to use Slashley as a comparison point for our Ashley, a, a yardstick to, to measure her progress. And I kind of love in this moment where the rest of the team is like searching for identities and, and, and breaking down a little bit. It seems like Ashley's doing pretty OK. Like she kind of has a really good handle on who she is and, and what she wants and what she needs. Um, she seems to be the most put together of everyone. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. I'm I'm proud of our girl, Ashley, although, of course, she's also perfectly in line with. What's happening in the scene? We have two Ashleys in the scene. We have the two identities of, yeah. of Ashley. So everyone, everyone in this chapter is is being bifurcated. Yeah. Um, interesting. Almost as if like there's a there's a reflection gleaming off of things. Yes. Um, I think it is it, like first of all, this the whole scene's hilarious because like Damsel is constantly like offering things from the peanut gallery that is not useful. Yeah. Like she's like commenting on everything and like <laughs> making things. It's just like, that's not helping right now. Um, but I am, well, let's not get, we, we got to go a little further before we get to this. I am, I'm worried about my girl, Ashley, man. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so I just like the Victoria uses the word teachered and goddess in this in this chapter which is yeah. like a funny and realistic way of using language yeah I, I would probably use those words yeah. yeah so damsel questions why victoria would want to avoid supporting goddess openly and i love what happens next maybe we think of it as a question of reputation swan song said if we appear to be too subservient hmm damsel made a sound hmm swan song echoed her she glanced at me and rolled her eyes slightly. <laughs> so I just I love that so much because it's it's showing that Swan Song knows exactly what to say to Damsel because like she is the evolved form of Damsel. She she yeah. she this is the kind of thing she's had to say to herself to judo her worst impulses all the time for for a long time now. Yeah, I, I love it. Like I love seeing Ashley go here. It is it is so great. Um, and therefore it, it makes me worried. Uh-huh. Um here, I think Ashley's going to die. <laughs> and I like, it's one of those things where you look structurally at like her role in the story and, um, how far she's come and how she's doing. And I just see her like, I, I, I see the next big role she can serve. This story is what happens if she's taken away. Um, 
and and that makes me really sad. But it, it, it out of like someone in this group's gonna die, Matt. Like this is parahumans world. Like people don't live through this book, and I think I think it's gonna be her. Well, as I as I said earlier, when you told me this, I both can't and won't accept that. <laughs> or like I'm just saying this because perhaps saying it means it won't happen. I don't think. Uh, um, yeah, no, you're right. That's definitely going to work. <laughs> um, all right. So next, moving on from that terrible thing you just said. I'm sorry. It's just how I feel. Yeah. Okay. All right. So Ratcatcher arrives with crystal clear. Um, she's made a mask for herself. The only time I remember a mask being specifically mentioned inside the prison. Ratcatcher and Crystal Clear decide to go underground to enter the network that connects the buildings and possibly find a way to signal for help. Tress goes as well, and Swansong comes along because she doesn't want to fight Lung and end up killing him. Yeah, so are you saying that Ashley like has such a good grip on herself and her identity that she knows exactly what situation she should be in and what situation she shouldn't Yep. and is able to choose for herself? Uh-huh. She's wow. found self-actualization. Yeah, she's that's wow. I'm so proud of her. Surely nothing bad will happen to her. Oh my god. <laughs> so so now Victoria invokes the Tristan Byron protocol and Tristan complies despite not being sure if Byron can be trusted. Oh my god, Byron was right. Tristan doesn't trust him. It's here right in front of us. Yeah. This is it. It's funny. Uh, so they, next, they come <laughs> upon Lung and the pharmacist taking on the prison guards. The two of them play off each other, creating huge amounts of fire, but only where they want it. Lung recognizes Victoria. Dallin. Lung growled the world, still capable of speech. Pests. Too many of you remain. Which is just like a him. really shitty thing to say. It really is. Like, it's awful, but it's also kind of badass. Yeah, it's kind of a totally long thing to say. Yeah. Uh, Goddess then arrives at the fight with Lookout. Monokuros is present as well. Her hands on Lookout's shoulders. It's fine. It's fine. This, there's no there's no problem with this nope, at all. I'm, I'm okay. I'm just going to skim right past that. The chapter ends with Goddess and Lung <laughs> going for each other and Goddess's power failing to connect with Lung due to the pharmacist's intervention. Yeah, and I, I actually think the end of this chapter is some of Welbo's like most beautifully like evocative writing like I, I i love how this like i love we, we've got these two powerhouses standing up next to each other and and they kind of charge forward and goddess charges forward and basically gets immediately rebuffed and then so it's it's kind of up to victoria at this point yep and I, the, the sentence ends with i took flight past flames and towards blue moats and lines into that self same snare it's such a it's so badass and it's so well put together and we're, we're going into an action chapter and it's a perfect way to to get in there yeah i, I love that as a, as an ending of just and yet again goddess is being an idiot um and, yeah. and throwing herself into a stupid situation that victoria recognizes as such and is like well i guess i'm going to have to save her yeah, and again, I think it, it Wildbook covers himself so well sometimes because like the immediate reaction here is, well, why doesn't she just use her mind whammy on him? And it's like, oh, she tried, it just turned into purple fire. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like this yeah, this this abstract forces that were reaching out from her towards his brain. It's it's wonderful. Right, yeah, the, the it's fun it's fun to step back from these chapters and and think about 
all of the clever traps um, that we're seeing, like like yeah. all of the things that um, the pharmacists can do. So yeah, because because it's the internet, and if you miss something like that, people are going to call you on it. Yep, that's right. So we move on into nine dot eleven. Uh, this chapter is a badass fight scene that brings forth a lot of the character stuff that has been happening with Victoria throughout this arc. And I kind of think of this as like orchestral music where different distinct musical themes or motifs are used throughout the piece in isolation, developed gradually, gradually building towards climax where those themes all come together and then there's interplay and unexpected harmony between them. Wow, Matt, that was really fucking beautiful. I can't I can't do any better than that. So I'm just going to say I concur. Awesome. Um, so and Terry's fights Lung using all of her strategic insight, controlling the movement of the purple flame with her aura, trying to duel him with the wretch and keeping just ahead of the flames with her flight. She continually tries to figure out where the pharmacist is hiding uh, as she fights Lung, understanding that she's the linchpin of the battle strategy. At least once she throws herself skyward and then turns off all her powers, sailing through the dark sky like a projectile. Um, then there's another moment uh, in this fight, which I can't help but read a lot into, where she suddenly realizes that her perception of what she's seeing is completely wrong. And I think it's a really cool and unique action moment. Uh, I'm going to read the whole bit. Do it. I use the sea of purple fire to orient myself, the dots and slices of yellow and orange serving as my as my position reference for where the apartments and staff buildings were and put everything into that perspective frame. I lurched to the side as if by some telekinetic force, found nothing recognizable, and glimpsed another sea of fire, of red and orange. Fear stabbed me in the chest as I tumbled through a world that made no sense. The sea of purple I'd seen before was dissipating, breaking up, and a wall of fire loomed before me, pulling me toward it with an insane, inviolable force. I forced my frame of reference to shift again. I'd had everything the wrong way around. The sea of purple fire had been the residual fire from Lung's attack, the dots of yellow and orange, just sparks in the air, not the faces of buildings, a moment of dizziness, of disorientation, and limited lighting. So, Scott, she's orienting herself, <laughs> but it's by a misperception, a, a mirage, and then, and then she forces herself to shift reference frame into a new one and realizes that she was seeing everything wrong. Oh, yeah, that's not at all relating to exactly what's going on internally with her. I mean, I, I'm so glad you pulled that out. It, like it's, it's one of those things that works as just this badass scene where she like is forced to shut her power off and just goes tumbling through the sky. And like, it would work really well as a visual scene, but yeah, it so fits what's going on with her that she's, she's looking for a, a signpost, a way to, to orient herself, to orient her mind in, in this battle. And as soon as she comes across one that's a problem, she reorients, she shifts to something else. She pulls a new personality out of her personality hat and grabs onto it as an attempt to right herself. Um, it's so wonderful. Yeah. Um, so, of course, as the fight progresses, Lung changes, eventually achieving something close to his full dragon form. Because this is a long fight and because it's from an outside point of view, we get to see the detail of his changes very clearly how he seems to like tear at his own body to speed along the change. Yeah. He's fucking metal as fuck, Matt. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome fight. 
Yeah. Um, I really love the attention to detail and how fighting these circumstances sees Victoria soaked in sweat with her eyes burning, her throat aching, all the moisture just sucked out of her. Yeah, I, I love I love that, too, like the exhaustion she's experiencing. And I really love how it's not just physical exhaustion. Um, like she's she's talking about how she's getting mentally exhausted, too. Like she mentions that her flying doesn't wear her out because it's not like a physical force. It's it's something else. So like she never gets tired by flying. But but she's being so mentally and, and drained other ways that she's even starting to fly slower. And, and she makes makes a note in here that like as she's fighting, as things are getting worse, she's feeling less and less human. It's like even, even the new selves that she's grabbed onto are starting to wear down and wear out and she's not sure where to go. Yeah, no, I I think, yeah, she's just, she, she should have, she should have stopped fighting a long time ago, but like you said earlier, she can't Mm -hmm. and she's, she's just losing, (laughs) she's becoming more automatic and more animal. Yeah. Yeah. So as the fight starts to go badly and she becomes hemmed in by fire, she loses her grip again. She loses her functionality and the bad thoughts start crowding out the ones that she uses to keep herself together. And she thinks, um, but to act as as glory girl, to have Amy take that away all over again, it made me feel like my essential being, my heart wasn't even there anymore. That heartless emptiness inside me wasn't anything new, but it had never hit me to this degree at a moment that I felt like I was functioning. So what's happening here is like she can't rely on the warrior monk or glory girl. So she resorts to relying on the wretch. Yeah. uh, Which earlier we had we had mentioned that she kind of found some strength in the idea of her, you know, the time when she was a blob and, and that thought hadn't repelled her. And the wretch in this moment of desperation becomes a source of strength for her. Yeah, and I love what you said when we were talking about this earlier that that then she takes her trauma and and turns that into her strength. Mm-hmm. And it's really this this wonderful moment. Like and and it's one of those moments that I you you don't know if you want to like cry or cheer because she says glory girl can't win this. So what does 110% wretch look like? And you're like, "Oh fuck yeah." yeah. But then you're like, "Oh wait, what if she f- kills someone?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so you're like, "Yes, but uh, maybe not 110. I don't yeah, know. Maybe we start out at, at 15. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it is, it is so like, and, and I think that again ties with what we've been talking about all episode is this idea of, of being forced into a corner where you have to act to get through the now, um, with the potential of consequences later. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess we will have to see. Yeah, well, she's not, I mean, she's not even done self-actualizing. Here, right, so. yeah, this is, uh, yeah, we're getting these awesome, like, internal and external beats. Uh, she And then I just like this bit where she's thinking about goddess, and she thinks, she was scarily close to what I wanted, and I wasn't sure how much of that was the master stranger effect that was supposedly in place. 110%, the study of powers, the authority, people organized and listening to her. Even now, she was sorting out the people she brought from apartments. So yeah, she's she's consciously acknowledging the similarity between her and Goddess, and yeah, and, and kind of how she kind of wants to be like that, but but not in the bad ways. Like <laughs> yeah, I think honestly. So yeah, she she gets back into the fight and she tries to coax to coax the wretch into hitting lung with something, and it doesn't really work. But um, but. Like the first attempt doesn't really work, but then the wretch does gradually start to work with her as the fight goes on. Um, next, Byron dumps a ton of water on Lung and then switches out, turning 
the whole area into a massive region of stone encasing lung. Goddess is then like smugly thinking the fight is over, <laughs> but in Terry's knows that it isn't. Uh, and then of course, Lung like distracts her and deceives her and then melts his way out of the stone. God, Goddess sucks, right? Like, yeah, like, yes, we won. And everyone is like, um, no, yeah. I, I think this is like, there's so instruct, like, Goddess seems to me like a person that's so reliant on her powers that like she doesn't think anymore. Yeah. Like, like imagine she has a danger sense, right? So like imagine having a danger sense your entire life. So you don't have to like plot out long term, like what bad things are going to happen because it's just like, well, if something bad's going to happen, then I'll, I'll feel the bad thing. So like, she just seems like someone that's so overly reliant on her powers and it doesn't use her brain anymore. Yeah. I mean, to contrast her with another, you know, really good villain, um, Taylor, uh, God has probably just won too quickly. Like, whereas Taylor had to just like fight and fight and fight and like got, yeah. got really good at, at clever strategy and tactics. Whereas God is just like one, like she just, yeah. like we don't, we don't actually know this, but it seems like she just like won and then didn't really have to fight yeah. anymore. So yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. It's like, it's like you're, you're gifted with, a bunch of powers that solve every problem for you versus you've got one power that on the surface seems not very effective, but you, the only way to make it effective is to come up with creative ways to use it. And yeah, I, I like that comparison a lot. Yeah. I, I just love, you know, an, another beat of the mind whammy at work, Victoria thinking she had her good points. She had her great points. She had her amazing points. Even this wasn't one of them. I paused for a second, then decided it was endearing. Then things were good. <laughs> it's so aware while simultaneously being unaware. It's like, it's like, yeah, I mean, she's great. She's perfect. She's awesome. Yeah. Um, this is kind of shitty. Yeah. It's kind of dumb. Though. Hold on. Actually, hold on. it's kind of cute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. It's like, it's like when you're in a new relationship, when you've decided <laughs> that like the annoying thing someone does is actually kind of adorable because uh-huh. you like them so much. It's like, no, it's actually just annoying. Uh-huh. It's like, you're going to get there. Oh, that's, that's a great comparison. <laughs> so they go back into the fight and Vict- and uh, working with the wretch, Victoria uses all of her available hands to throw Tristan's stone spikes like javelins. Goddess leaves the fight and now it's basically just Victoria in wretch mode bringing the motherfucking fight to Lung, chasing him through the sky, goading him with the aura. And through this fight, she achieves her goal, which is, of course, not beating Lung because she knows she's not going to do that, but rather figuring out where the pharmacist is hiding. And like as soon as she sees an opening, she peels off, smashes through the building after the woman psychologically manipulates her into panicking and then holding her hostage with a metal spike to her throat. Uh, remember earlier when goddess asked Sveta if she could hold a knife to someone's throat and it was clear <laughs> that she couldn't. Well, guess who can? Yeah. Yeah. So this is amazing. Right. And I think action scenes in this book are never simple. They're always complex. And I'm not just talking about like the number of powers and the strategies going on. I mean, like emotionally complex. This is one of the most emotionally impactful scenes I've read in this book so far. Victoria is amazing here. She's doing all these badass things um, like just just the visual mind's eye image of what this fight looked like when she's like carrying these shards of Tristan stone and in her like in her wretch and just like constantly throwing them at him. It it is so 
wonderful. Yeah. Well, and like he's like a huge dragon monster and she's right. basically soloing him. I mean, she has support, right. but she's she's the tank here. And it's, it's pretty fucking badass. Yeah. And and more importantly than the physical, though, is what's going on in her head. Right. Because she is she has said, I'm going 110 percent the wretch. And then she realized even even weaponizing my trauma weaponizing the wretch is not enough she starts saying okay um warrior monk i'm gonna use that uh scholar i'm gonna use that and then by the end of it she's saying it wasn't about finding that one part of me and executing it beyond it beyond perfectly the warrior monk the wretch the scholar the girl all together this is victoria taking those disparate personalities that she's been using as coping mechanisms and instead of running into one she's combining them she's she's becoming one person she's becoming victoria and and taking all these disparate parts of her and making them as part of the the one thing and that's amazing yeah this this is so this is such amazing character work uh and and you're just so into it because and and it's also that psychologically realistic thing because like she was shattered as a person she wasn't functional anymore and we've seen her try on different personalities to see what could be functional, what could work for her, what could yeah. make her happy and realize that like, you know what, I've like, this is her realizing like, you know what, I, I have all of those pieces. I just need to yeah. put them together now. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I mean, that's recovering from terrible things that happened to you, right? You, you, you try to find a different part of yourself and eventually you, you realize that these are all these disparate parts are, are you. And like, I love this metaphorically has how she's dealing with her trauma and the things that happened to her. She's reforming who Victoria Dallin is. Yeah. And I, I love it. And like to fit in what we've been talking about, I wonder what the consequences of this will be going down the road. And, and I don't like, I, I'm not, like I said, halfway through this the, the, this week's reading, I was worried about Victoria. I'm much less worried about Victoria in this moment. Um, she seems like she's, at least for the moment, found a measure of herself. And that that bodes well for me. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like we've seen we've seen a lot of splitting and and refracting and yeah. like light being split by a prism of all these different characters and their and their identities and here it's almost like one of those combining prisms where the rays of light are shining into it and combining into one yeah and it's super satisfying now the interesting thing about this map is so if we say that the way she got here, like the way she built herself up was being torn completely down. Therefore, we're saying that the meeting with Amy actually was kind of almost a catalyst for this growth. Um, what that says is yay for Victoria. What's the opposite side of that coin? Because Victoria left this devastated, but rebuilt herself up. Um, Amy left this, this encounter completely destroyed. And what is her reaction going to look like to that? Yeah. Yeah, I think what I said earlier when we were talking about this was that this has been a very intense arc for Victoria, but this mm -hmm. has actually been traumatic for Amy because yeah. she didn't she didn't understand like like this is all news to her. This is just crushing, devastating, um, uh, and 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 extremely painful. Whereas for Victoria, yeah. it's almost just a it's just a linear escalation of what she's already been dealing with, 
And, and like you said, that escalation has actually pushed her to the point where she's had to, she, she's had to formulate a, a new identity that actually yeah. serves her. And now she's like, it's like click. It's like, I, I'm actually very eager to see what, what, like how she reacts to Amy after this, um, uh, after like kind of having everything come together for her like this. Yeah. I'm for the first time in this book, actually worried about what Amy's going to do. Um, I think every time we've seen like Victoria terrified of what Amy could do and is capable of, I've kind of dismissed it as like, that's not Amy. But I, I do think this, this interaction had a bad effect on her. And while Victoria managed to find a way to, to, to build herself up temporarily. Yeah. I, Amy could be completely ripped apart and could lash out badly. Yeah, thanks for making me think about that in this moment where I was really happy about Victoria's progress. Well, well, well but the thing about this this moment, though, Matt, is as you're about to say, we have this moment of victory where she like takes out uh, the pharmacist and and they've defeated Lung, and then it's it's capped off with, with oh yeah, yeah, tomorrow, yeah, with her coming outside and all of our favorite people, her her allies. Uh, are standing there goddess lung coal belcher seer oh good awesome yeah as if to say congratulations you won today um tomorrow though yeah right. that's gonna be some shit yeah i mean it, it is pretty it is pretty funny that like this badass victory was actually her like completely serving the will of a villain right um, yeah so yeah she comes out she regroups with byron and rain but kinsey is nowhere in sight and yeah. the rest of the team may be in trouble Oh boy. Yep. It's not looking good for the rest of them. Finally Victoria's doing all right. Everyone else everyone else is in some shit. Yep. All right. That's it for uh these four chapters of Gleaming. Uh and we're not going to do name game cuz I don't think we had any. It's been a long episode and we didn't have any also. Yeah. Uh discussion question for today. Self identity has been a major theme in Ward. What does the text say about the nature of identity, about how identity shifts over time? This feels like a real English class question. Yeah, thank you. And uh, <laughs> looking forward. That is, to say, that is to say I like the question a lot, and I'm very interested to see what you guys come up with. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, so that's all we have for you this week on We've Got Ward. You guys are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on Twitter at gotwormpod. My personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at mordenamail. You got to mix it up. Yeah, you it's, mix it it's up. true. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find all the podcasts we do over at doofmedia.com. This week um, on Vow to View, I'm making my wife watch some scary movie, and she's mad at me about it. Yay. Um, and we'll, of course, have a new episode of the Doofcast as well. Cool. Look forward to that. All right. Uh, that's right. And if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate a dollar a month or whatever else you can afford. Supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in our quarterly fan art contests um, and costume contest this month, Q&A sessions, access to live streams of our recording sessions, 
and our excellent lively Discord chat. Special thanks to new patrons, uh, Bidoof's Justin C., Ineash B., Satya P., and Aisha B., uh, all at the $1 level, and Doof Troop members, Donnie M., and Mr. Evil Doom at the $10 level. And also, Doof Warrior, Zendrex, upgraded to $20. Thank you so much, all of you guys. Uh, it, it, it's always, like, humbling. Um, yeah. Especially when and there's, we, like, just, like, the tidal wave of people like this. Yeah, we, we take a week off and we get all these donations. We should do that, do that more often. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll only come back if we get a certain... No, I'm just kidding. No, that's never... No, we would never do no. that. Thank you guys so much. That's, it's amazing. Um, we are... We are using these kind donations to get more stuff. Matt has a green screen now and some lights. Um, we're going to do more stuff and it's, it's very exciting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as always, of course, make sure you go over to Wildbo's Patreon, patreon.com slash Wildbo and donate to him as well. This is his world. We're just playing in it. And if you cannot afford to donate right now, that's absolutely okay. You can pretend to kill your brother and then say a book made you do it. Um, or you can head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. This week's review comes from Taco222, who gives us five stars and says, I've recently binged through all of We've Got Worm and I'm nearly caught up on We've Got Ward. Matt and Scott have greatly enhanced my appreciation of the series that was already one of my all-time favorites through their thorough analysis, keen observations, and humorous discussions. The one downside is that I'm not sure how I'll be able to truly appreciate future stories without their commentary, and I'm afraid they may have actually ruined my life forever. So, thanks, I guess. Thank you. I'm sorry we ruined your life. You know, I guess what we're just going to have to do here, Matt, is cover everything. Yeah. Just all the stories. I mean, I've been meaning to suggest that as yeah, an idea. Let's just, let's just do that. So yeah. let's just get started. All right. Um, all right. All right. That's it for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week to cover the next two chapters in this story. Will we finish Gleaming? Uh, find out next week on We've Got Ward. I mean, probably, right? I, I don't know. Me neither. No idea. Let's stop recording now. Me too. trying to come up with something clever to say and it just didn't happen.